0: Well, every farmer knows that in order for a good harvest to occur, days, weeks, and even months of hard work must precede this harvest. Hours upon hours of, of work are involved. Day after day, a farmer must tend uh, to his crops, must uh, fertilize his crops, must uh, water his crops, uh, tend to the plants, all with the hope that these little green shoots would grow eventually and produce a plentiful harvest. And yet this same farmer knows that this long process began when he placed a little seed in the ground. Uh, The scriptures often use plants or organic growth and the resulting fruit or harvest as an analogy to teach us one or more scriptural truths. Organic analogies are scattered throughout Paul's letters uh, as well as the gospels as you reflect on these you might have uh, your mind eye going over the scriptures and reflecting on these organic analogies you will likely call to mind uh, the parables uh, of Jesus often the parables of Jesus reflected on this truth and perhaps the parable of the sower or the parable of the mustard seed might come to mind Uh, These parables do indeed convey precious truths, but I want to draw your attention to one lesser known parable that Jesus gives in John 12. So if you keep your finger in Colossians 3 and turn just briefly to John 12, here in verses 24 to 26, Jesus states this Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be." If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now, notice at least two things that Jesus teaches in this parable. First, in order that an abundance of fruit might be enjoyed, what must happen first? Death must occur. And second, this necessity of death, which results in fullness of life, is directly tied to community, the the theme of our chapel messages. How so, you might ask. Well, notice the contrast that Jesus gives between the seed that does not die and give up its life versus the seed that does die and give up its life. What happens? The seed that does not die, Jesus said, it remains alone. Whereas the seed that does die or that does give up its life, it produces a rich harvest joined by many other seeds going through this similar process. Well, this same paradoxical truth of dying to self and living a life rich, a full life rich in community is confirmed in the first 17 verses of Colossians 3, the chapter that we have already read. After a consideration of these verses, I trust that this central truth Will become evident. Colossians 3, 1 through 17, provides the outline of a proper Christian community or communion. Communion that involves both mortification of the old man and vivification of the new man. Something that is only possible as a direct result of our firmly established union with Christ. Now that's a mouthful. So, simply put, Uh, Stated more simply, union with Christ necessarily leads to communion with others. And this communion involves both a putting off of the old and a putting on of the new. So in unfolding this central truth, we will consider two basic points. They're easy. Union with Christ and communion with others. So first union with the risen Christ. As already expressed a a number of times, our chapel messages uh, will reflect on living in community, what it looks like to live in community. And so when I was asked to deliver this chapel message, I eventually landed on this chapter, Colossians 3, and I was drawn to verse 15. Here Paul states this, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts To the which also you are called in what? In one body. And be thankful. Now this verse parallels nicely with last week's chapel. You remember Dr. Kelderman spoke from 1 Corinthians 12. Where Paul gives this analogy of a singular body. One body. And he gives this analogy to instruct each member or part of the body as to how they are to live in communion with each other, each identifying and exercising their God-given gifts for the common good. Well, as I looked at this verse, uh, verse 15, and its high calling of living peaceably with each other as one body, I began to reflect on the sad reality that this is often not the case. Undoubtedly, as you consider your church community, or as I consider my church community, or perhaps as we consider our seminary community here, as we reflect on these communities, it is far too often the case that our communities are not reflecting, not displaying this unifying bond of love and peace as described in verses 14 and 15. It's often not the case. I remember uh, well, the very first session meeting that I've ever attended as a new elder, um, some 10 plus years ago, I was not aware of it, uh, but at the time, at, at my first session meeting, uh, the elders were going through uh, two very, very difficult discipline cases. Um, hours were spent talking about these cases and praying about how to best handle these cases. And I was rather ignorant coming in, I was ignorant to the to the warts and to the bruises uh, of our church uh, community. And after uh, much reflection and, and prayer and, and discussing how these are to be resolved, I went home to my wife that night and I said to her, I, I concluded, there are at least two things, two fundamental issues uh, that affect the love and purity of our church. Uh, broken relationships and uh, lack of communion, uh, communication, hurt feelings, and lack of communication. These affect or break relationship, relationships. I also do uh, remember thinking, what did I sign up for, uh, for this? Um, now, thankfully, these uh, hard cases were eventually resolved. But I'm sure that as you think of your communities, in instances in your church community, or perhaps even this seminary community where this command of verse 15 and it is a command where this command of letting god's peace rule in our hearts in one body is not followed perhaps you are aware of members in your church where real hurt is ongoing perhaps you know of a of a strained relationship between a husband and a wife, or a, a parent and a child, uh, perhaps an abusive uh, relationship, or an unhealthy relationship. Uh, perhaps you yourself have experienced the hard reality of someone betraying you, uh, perhaps someone you thought that you could trust as a, a close friend or a close confidant, uh, yet now this person betrayed you and that that peaceful loving union that you had with that person is shattered or uh, perhaps as uh, or as each of us are called to do after examining our own actions our own words our own motives we might become aware of ways that we have wrongly offended a brother or a sister and that union is affected perhaps we have undermined their character or reputation in order to prop ours up just a little bit further. Well, whatever the case might be that comes to your mind as you reflect on your communities, the terrible reality exists that verse 15 is not always followed in our communities. It is not always true in our churches, and it's not always true here in our seminary. In short, whether because of our own wrongs or wrongs done to us, our communities fail to live up to this verse, to this vital imperative, or in fact, any of the imperatives that are listed in chapter three, especially if you look at from verse five all the way through chapter four, verse six, this long list of imperatives. This reality of brokenness in community forces us to look beyond verse 15, or to put it another way, to look, to consider this verse in its context. And so it's necessary for us to consider where Paul begins in this chapter. It is as though Paul, at the at the, at the very beginning, before, before listing what our communities ought to be, at the beginning, he takes our heads and he turns our heads, rather than looking downward or about us. He takes our heads and he forces them to look up. And where does he cause us to look? To look up in true Pauline fashion, the apostle does not begin with a long list of commands or duties, but with a consideration of whom? Of the ascended, risen, and victorious Jesus Christ. Look again at the language of verse 1 and 2. He says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Well, our first and primary gaze must then fixate on Jesus Christ, the one who is seated as the exalted and risen king in the high heavens. Chrysostom uh, comments on this first verse of Colossians, and he writes this. He says in his golden-tongued way, he says, See the wisdom of our teacher, and to what a height he immediately raises those who listen to him. He cut a path through the midst of all the angels, archangels, thrones, Dominations, principalities, virtues, all those invisible powers, the cherubim and seraphim. And he set the thoughts of the faithful right before the very throne of the king. And yet verses 1 through 4 of this chapter are not satisfied with a simple beholding of King Jesus or a distant consideration of Jesus in all his ascended glory, and power. Certainly not. Rather, Paul emphasizes that all those who have died to self and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they are what? They are presently, even now, so securely united to this ascended king that as surely as he rose from the dead, so too you, having trusted in him, are now raised with, from deadness to life. The heiress passive uh, of the verb in verse one makes this all the more striking. The believer's bodily resurrection is indeed a future reality. It is. When verse four says, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear in the future. And yet Paul speaks of our resurrection in Christ as a historic event. It's a past reality, our resurrection, that's intricately connected to the historic event of Christ's bodily resurrection. Paul echoes this in Ephesians 2, verse 6, where he affirms that we are raised up with Christ and even now seated with him in the heavenly realms. So uh, thus, our, our gaze is not only Instructed to pierce through the heavens and behold Christ sitting regally on the throne, it's not a simple beholding, but we are told that we dwell securely with him now in the heavenly places, having been raised to newness of life. Well, how is it that Paul can make such a bold claim you You might question well my present situation it it surely doesn't seem to match this reality how is he how is he saying that this is true my reality is one where i experience pain brokenness division suffering or or perhaps you think there's far too much sin and failure in my life for this to be true in either case we we often conclude my current life does not match this reality. And therefore, this, this already accomplished resurrection to new and glorious life is not true. It cannot be true based on my circumstances. Well, consider the context or, or the situation in which Paul is writing these glorious truths. First, remember that, that Paul wrote the book of Colossians while he was in a, in a Roman prison, or at least uh, at, while under house arrest. Paul did not look to his present circumstances, including possible death, and draw his conclusions from these bleak surroundings. No, in, inspired by the Holy Spirit to, to pen these words, Paul concluded this glorious truth based on the believer's vital union to Christ. Despite what his present circumstances were, and second, a primary purpose of Paul's letter to Colossae was to warn against the church's relapse into pagan immoral practices, and to warn against what scholars call the Colossian heresy. If you if you, if you look back at chapter two, much of chapter two is him addressing this particular heresy, following after philosophies of men, chapter 2, verse 8, Jewish ceremonialism, uh, verse 11 and 16 to 17, angel worship, verse 18, and asceticism. Now, without excusing their sin, it's amazing to consider that it's to this church, this church, that Paul writes this glorious truth. Through the Holy Spirit, he exclaims, you are risen with the ascended Lord, and even presently now united with him. And so this truth of union with the risen Christ is a doctrine that far exceeds the boundaries of our limited scope and circumstances. One theologian has stated it this way, nothing is more basic to Paul's teaching on salvation than the union that exists between Christ and believers. The reality of being in Christ, being united to Christ lies at the basis of all God's dealings with his people for their salvation from eternity to eternity. From their being chosen in him before the foundation of the world to their present life and freedom from condemnation for their sins in Christ Jesus to their future glorification with him in that union. Now, glance with me over the previous chapter, chapter 2. Notice here uh, the many times that Paul stresses the glorious reality of being united in Christ. And it's signaled by this this language of in him or with him. So look, chapter 2, verse 3. In whom? Verse 5. In Christ. Verse 6. Walk in him. Verse 7. Rooted and built up in him. Verse 9. In him. Verse 10. Complete in him. Verse 11. In whom also you are circumcised. Verse 12. Buried with him in baptism. Wherein also you are risen with him. Verse 13, uh, 13. Being dead in your sins, hath he quickened together with him. And verse 20, dead with Christ. It's as if Paul cannot overstate the significance of this truth. His resounding statements are like a a rising crescendo or this chorus of in hymns and with hymns. And they all find their their culmination, their, their apex in this amazing gospel truth of being raised and ascended with Christ, of being united to this ascended Lord. And so this, Paul affirms, this is the indicative. We're chosen in him, having faith in him, walking in him, strengthened in him, buried with him in, in his death, made alive in him, raised in him. This is the reality. This is the reality for all those whose lives are hid with Christ, having placed their faith in him. Well, it's from this certain and fixed truth that Paul then, and only then, moves towards the imperatives. And here we will consider this uh, second point, communion with others. Firmly establishing our union with the risen and ascended king, verses 5 to 17 Paul gives this list of imperatives that ought to mark our communion amongst believers. The point here is a simple one. Union with Christ necessarily leads to communion with others. And yet, this communion has a distinct character. There are two specific elements that must mark any Christian community. First, there's the negative element of putting to death what Paul calls the old man, or mortifying any ungodly behavior. And second, there's the positive element of putting on the new man, sometimes called vivification. Notice uh, the, the first, the, uh, the things that we are commanded to kill or to put off. Uh, he lists these in verses 5 to 9. He says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds." This list of sins that we must kill or put off, uh, put to death, is strikingly similar to what is commanded against in what is often called the second table of the law. Commandment six, against murder. This is uh, under which is subsumed the anger, wrath, and malice of verse nine. Commandment seven, against idolatry, under which is subsumed Sexual immorality and unclean passions of verse 5. Commandment 8 against theft, under which is subsumed the greed of verse 5. Commandment 9 against bearing false witness, under which is subsumed slander or blasphemy, filthy communication and lying of verses 8 and 9. And finally, commandment 10 against covetousness, which is directly addressed as idolatry. In verse 5. Well this echo of this perfect moral standard as given through Moses Colossians 3 demands that we put to death each one of these sins in contrast to Adam who failed in stamping out and putting to death any unholy thing that entered the garden as redeemed and risen children United to the victorious second Adam, the one who did keep this law perfectly, we are called to put to death any unholy action or any unholy thought that dare rises against the Lord's anointed. Wherever we see murder, sexual immorality, theft, dishonesty, or covetousness take root in our heart, in whatever form it might be, like a watchful gardener who quickly snatches up any we- a sign of a weed, we must put to death uh, these sins. And so notice also how Paul says that the Christian used to be one who was living in sin. This was the pattern you used to model. This was your old way, he says, or your old man. The way in which you used to walk. Indeed, you were united to your sins before. You, what does he say in verse 7? You lived in them, in your sins. That's how you used to live. But now, given your union with Christ, you are no longer united to your sin. The logic follows. if If you are no longer bound to your sin, put to death any remnants of this sin. What gives you the power to do this, you might say? To to kill sin, to put to death this sin. Well, it's the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. As the one united and risen with him, this alone enables and empowers you to put off your old man. The sins that we are committed to put to death here are all sins that not only seek to undermine our union with Christ, but also sins that destroy our relationship or communion with others. Take any one of the sins listed here, and you can trace how, when taken to their final end, what do they lead to? Division, broken relationships, and disunity. If it's slander, or anger, or covetousness, or dishonesty, or sexual impurity, the ultimate fruit, the ultimate end of each one is not pleasure or profit as Satan tempts often with uh, us with, but the exact opposite. These sins lead to the very awful circumstances of betrayal and brokenness that we called to mind earlier. That's their end. Well, in contrast to these, uh, the the sins of verses 5 to 9, these sins that lead to division, disunity, and ultimately death, Paul instructs us, rather, in the second place, to put on the new man to be renewed after the image of Christ. Verse 10 declares that all those who have been united to their head, Jesus Christ, they have all been recreated. Just as in creation, God spoke by his powerful word and things came to be, so too in recreation. God's powerful word affects change from deadness to life. You are made alive. You are being renewed, fashioned, or made new, shaped again after the image of Christ. No longer are you connected to your uh, fallen father, Adam. You're united to Jesus. You are a new creation. Well, what does this mean then? For you as a new creation, how ought you to live in light of this reality? Furthermore, how does this affect how you commune or live in communion with others? Colossians 3 answered this by both a negative and a positive. First, as a new creation, united to Christ, you are not to live, stressing any earthly or uh, creaturely bond that we so often identify with. Race, skin, uh, skin color, gender, economic, economic class, the haves or the haves nots whatever external marker we so often trumpet as identity markers. Paul says, these are not the basis of our community. While today's culture so often demands otherwise, the bond that unites us in community is not found in our shared culture, our shared traditions, our shared food or or. Class or our economic class, our our history together, or physical appearance—these are not our our the bond that unites us together. No, Paul stresses the only foundation for Christian community is Christ. Why? He is all in all. That's the reason for our bond, and so that's the negative. But uh, Paul's point in in verse eleven is not that different ethnic groups. Or classes do not exist, but that our communion as Christians is not based on such external markers. Well, in contrast to this negative, he moves to positive stipulations. These he gives in verses 12 to 17. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, peaceableness, word-centered correction and instruction. Verse 16, and above all what? Above all love. This must characterize our Christian communities. As verses 14 and 15 stress, when the love and peace of Christ rule in our hearts, it will overflow in our thoughts and actions to others. Instead of the uh, resulting division caused by the former list of sins, A beautiful harmony results when these renewed characteristics are evident in our lives. And so echoing Romans 12, 1, Paul ends this section stressing that what our entire lives, whatever we do, he says, in word or in deed, whatever it might be, it ought to be as a spiritual sacrifice to our God, one of thanksgiving. Well, we began this message by calling to mind Jesus' parable of this seed that had to die in order to bear much fruit. According to Jesus, if a seed does not go through this process, what did we say? It remains alone. Our communion with others must follow this same paradoxical process. Only as we are, are united to Christ, our Lord, the one who has died, but was raised again to newness of life and now sits vindicated on the throne. Only as we are united to him, to this resurrected head, can we exercise joyful, peaceable communion with others, in which we too die to ourself, our old self, and now more and more put on the new man. Let's pray that our communities would more and more reflect the image of Christ that we have been recreated into. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you so thankful for this glorious reality of being united to our risen head, Jesus Christ. We thank you that out of our union with you, this glorious reality, that we can be ones who love in peace and harmony with each other. We thank you, Father, for this community. We, we pray, God, that you would establish this community, that it would truly be a reflection of our union with you. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you for your word. And we thank you for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.